Hello everybody, welcome to this Security SOS 2021 webinar. I'm Paul Ducklin. Today's guest is Chester Wisniewski. Hello, Chester. Hey, Doc. We're going to be talking about supply chain attacks. We've, I think we've all got a vague idea what supply chain attack means because it's an old term from physical supply chain days. But there's a bit more to it when it comes to IT and cybersecurity, isn't there? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think when I think of supply chain, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is a foreign government wanting to break into a military contractor. Probably pretty difficult to get into one of your tier one military contractors. So instead, you might target uh, a supplier to that company that maybe provides remote IT access for, the, uh, for those people to provide some sort of service and you kind of come in the, the side door, if you will. And uh, certainly when we're talking about IT in particular, more and more IT is being provided as a service, outsourced management, this kind of thing. And that certainly increases the amount of access that a lot of organizations provide to those trusted third parties that can now be targeted as sort of a, a side door on the way in. I don't want to call it a back door, but it's certainly not coming in the front door. There's no need for that to be just one step up the chain either, is there? So if you know that you rely on a company to provide you with updates that are in turn provided by another company and that they get those updates built by a software vendor somewhere else, you could go after that software vendor's build process. They poison the vendor that licenses their stuff. They poison the update server that your outsourcer relies upon, and they poison you. Sure. And not only that, you also can look at it as how wide a net might be cast by any given type of supply chain attack. Asus computers had some poison software uh, that they used for driver updating that appeared to hit millions of computers, but we never figured out which ones the adversaries were actually going to eventually put their payload on. They were, they were very scattershot in that case, whereas in other times we see um, you know, much more specificity with only affecting people that are directly victims. Actually, there's one I know you wrote about, Duck. I think there was an NPM package, uh, a JavaScript package in the NPM repository uh, a couple years ago that was poisoned to steal cryptocurrency wallets. And of course, that package might have ended up on thousands of people's computers, but only a fraction of them maybe had a cryptocurrency wallet that would have kicked that poison pill package into action to then start stealing those wallets. Historically, it's a big national security concern, uh, as it should be, whether other governments might be uh, kind of poison pilling some of our software and supply chains. But it's a whole different kettle of fish now that we see ransomware criminals and others getting involved in the supply chain game. And the outcomes are going to be far more impactful and concerning for the average person's online safety if criminals continue down this path. So in the Kaseya incident that happened recently, where with essentially one ransomware attack, thousands of networks got ransomed at the same time, I think it's reasonable to assume that the intention of what is essentially a supply chain attack there is the amplification. It's not, well, Let's let's try and reach everybody so we'll just get the few people we're targeting. It's let's get everybody in one go. It does show the scale of that problem that with essentially one intrusion, a thousand networks got hit. It almost reminds me of a new age worm, right? We used to have worms because we had lots of software exposed to the internet that had remotely exploitable holes in it. And then we saw things like WannaCry happen. 
now, as it's getting harder and harder to write wormable malware, rather than worming through exploits, maybe it's more efficient to worm through trusted suppliers. Okay, so Chester, let's move on to part two, which is how do these things typically happen? What are the, if you like, the ingress points that the crooks can use? Because I think a lot of people have the idea that supply chain attacks, they're kind of physical things like they would be if you wanted to substitute defective products in the old days. Most supply chain attacks, or the ones that make the news and that we probably need to be most concerned about, don't really involve hardware at all, do they? They could, but actually the clear and present danger is the risk that comes through automatic software updating that percolates downwards through many layers. Yeah, and and the origins um, have been around for a while, but there's lots of different ways it happens, right? I mean, uh, we've been writing about malware that would automatically infect people's projects when they were compiling them, for example, through compromising the build environment. And that's, of course, one of the ways these attacks still happen. Uh, But the example I raised a few minutes ago of that NPM package being compromised is another way that you might be able to slip code that does just about anything. I mean, the example we used was stealing crypto coin wallets, but there's nothing that would have stopped that code from providing a backdoor or delivering uh, further, you know, software malicious packages or being ransomware itself. The options are sort of limitless when you have the opportunity to introduce code into legitimate software. In at least one case that I'm aware of, the poisoning of open source package management tools, you know, like RubyGems, PyPy, Packagist for PHP, NPM, of course, the crooks who wanted to put the additional naughty software components into packages that lots of people used actually joined the community first and made themselves useful and hung around a bit and were willingly given the community keys to the castle. That was when they unleashed their malicious code on everybody else. These can be sort of plots that take a long time in the hatching. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, most code these days needs to be signed in some way. So you need to find a way of, you know, getting a signature on it so it'll be accepted by the updating system. And there's quite a few different ways of doing it, right? The example you used is you just kind of pretend to be friends until somebody gives you the keys. Um, We've seen nation states for years uh, using other malware to break into organizations and stealing their signing keys and then using those keys to sign their malware. Yes. Uh, We've seen people uh, pretend to be legitimate to certificate authorities and acquire legitimate certificates from certificate authorities by impersonating legitimate organizations. And of course, the the final way is the, the the first example I used, which was compromising the build environment itself so that the company that's delivering them the, the poisoned payload uh, inadvertently is signing it themselves. Yes, that was a huge problem going back more than a decade now to anybody who remembers the W32 slash Induc virus, which infected your Delphi build environment if you were a programmer. And then every program that you compiled thereafter had this virus in it. I remember in in our support group uh, having terrible trouble explaining to people that the the reason that this virus was spreading so continually in their organization was that it was coming from inside the house, as it were. It it did reconfirm my theory that all Delphi software is malware, which uh, if you've ever looked at Brazilian banking Trojans, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yes, that used to be the malware writer's tool of choice, didn't it? 
seems it's probably C sharp these days. But of course, that's exactly what happened in the Solar Winds attack uh, as well, right? So Solar Winds yes. and their attack were inadvertently signing their own software that contained some of this malicious code that uh, was uncovered in December of 2020. Yes, my understanding is the crooks would inject the malicious file just at the point that the build happened and then remove it afterwards. I presume if you were to do a test build or an out-of-tree build by just copying the files, it would all come out absolutely fine. But the one that was officially built and had the imprimatur of the company on it and was therefore accepted by everyone downstream was the one that had the malware in. Of course, there's a fifth way to pull this off as well, which was used in the Kaseya attack which is using a signed uh, legitimate executable that had a vulnerability in it, and then using that vulnerability in order to inject your own malicious code. And in the case of the uh, Kaseya ransomware from Revil, the Microsoft Defender had a vulnerability in it that allowed a DLL to be loaded instead of a legitimate one called sideloading. And the criminals just used that legitimate binary from Microsoft with Microsoft's signature on it to then inject that malicious uh, ransomware code into the leg otherwise legitimate Windows Defender process that uh, was an older version that was vulnerable, but it still had Microsoft's stamp of approval on it. The jargon term for that is BYOB, isn't it? Short for bring your own bug. So, I mean, all of this to me, Doc, just demonstrates that this is not a simple problem, right? This is a, a challenge for organizations that provide security tools, services, software services, uh, any kind of programs that, uh, especially things that rely on being kept up to date because of their critical nature within an enterprise environment. And there's a lot of different places that practitioners need to look in order to uh, secure their systems and ensure that they don't, uh, aren't exposed to this vulnerability. Yes, because it's a rather crashing irony, isn't it, that if the crooks can poison the components in the updating process that you're inclined to trust, for example, because of their digital signatures, then it's very hard to put your finger on why you're full of untrusted code afterwards, because as far as you can see, nobody's been downloading anything they shouldn't. So Chester, what to do? How do you reduce the risk of supply chain attacks, both as a supplier, let's start with that, and as a consumer? What can you do as a, an IT provider, as a software vendor, as a managed service provider, so that when you say to your customers and your prospects, we take your cybersecurity seriously, you really mean it? Well, certainly one place to start with as a software provider is understanding that uh, the security of your software is only as good as the security of your entire environment that's used to build and maintain that software. And that includes the security of your developers' desktops and how, they're, how they authenticate, how they're maintained and patched that kind of thing, all the way on to the computers that actually compile the code and package that code up for distribution. So I, th I think in a lot of cases, we focus too uh, singularly on product security itself and ignore the process with which that software was born, if you will. <laughs> and the security of all those things around the software that build it are equally important to that software's security as the code in, it, uh, in the software itself. So for a company that makes its own software and then publishes it publicly for automatic update with digital signatures, that build environment where the final trusted build is done and where the digital signatures are actually created, that should really be at least as secure as any other part of your network. 
It doesn't matter how secure the code is that you put in if the process of constructing the final version can inject insecure code at the last minute. Yeah, it, it's not an easy thing because uh, you've, you, you need people that have a lot of flexibility when they're developing code to be able to, you know, it's not like you want to air gap all of your developers, right? People need to be able to use the internet to, to search things and look things up and access manuals. And uh, there, there's, there's a million things that uh, often end up with looser security for software engineers compared to the rest of the organization, not tighter. So it is a, a very difficult balancing act. And I think it's, it's one of these things we have to look at it similar to defending our networks in general. Like we're going to do everything we can to prevent it from happening. So we're going to continuously improve the security of our build environments, our engineering environments, and, and, and monitor, 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 right? But on top of that, we can't spend all of our time there. We also need to think about how would we detect if it occurs and then how can we respond? And we can learn from what we saw in some of these other attacks on, and go, well, what would my company do? So you know, we saw Kaseya very quickly was able to disable their entire cloud infrastructure and, uh, while they were investigating what was going on. So that was operationally a really good thing. Like it only took them a few minutes to kind of turn off that infrastructure. So uh, we can take lessons from these examples and say, well, if, if this happened to my company, how would I detect it? Would I likely hear it because I found it or would I likely hear it because I'm looking? Or would I likely hear it from a third party because I'm not looking? And then when I do find out about it, what can I do to respond to that, to minimize the harm to the people that are uh, downstream from me that might be impacted? I guess one example there might be a thought experiment that you can conduct with respect to your entire development process uh, along the lines of imagine that one of your developers with the best will in the world does some kind of update of a package that they use and that package uses five other packages and those packages each use 10 other packages. You know how this goes, where you end up with this huge dependency tree that you kind of don't realize. If one of those 274 packages that you're, the package you think you're using depends upon were found to be poisoned, how quickly could you replace it with one that wasn't? How quickly could you advise your customers on how to find whether they had the poisoned package in the distribution they downloaded? And how quickly and how reliably could you fix it in a way that people would be inclined to trust you the second time? That sounds as though I'm saying you should plan for failure. But really what I'm saying is that the time to practice what to do when something goes wrong is before it happens. Don't try and make it up as you go along because you will not have time. Absolutely. I mean, I, I personally reviewed my earthquake response kit this weekend uh, as some fun things to do on a Sunday. But there's a reason for that, right? I, the, the, geologically, the likelihood of there being a severe earthquake here is, you know, one in 40,000 or something, right, in a given year. And that sounds like it's probably not going to happen. But you know what? I'm going to be pretty grateful for that fresh water and those batteries that aren't dead that I replaced in my bag this week uh, if it does happen. And it only took me a few minutes of thought to be prepared for a crisis event that might happen to my family. And I think we need to be similarly prepared for crisis events in the workplace, uh, have we thought about it? Do we know how we would do it? Do we know who can approve it if it needs approval to turn something on or off or retract a software package? And then when it does happen, uh, if it does happen, uh, you'll be able to respond in minutes, not days. And that'll make all the difference to your reputation, to the safety of your customers and, and anybody that's been impacted. Okay, Chester, let's go to the other side of that coin. Imagine that we're not the IT supplier worried about how bad it might be and how often it might look 
if we allow untrusted stuff to float downstream to our paying customers with our checkmark of approval on it. Um, but before we go to the final consumers of the stuff coming downstream, what can the people traditionally in the middle, let's call them service providers, managed service providers, what can those MSPs do to make sure that they don't become what you might call a, an attack magnifier, which is, I think, pretty much what happened in, in the Kaseya incident, isn't it? It is. And of course, that, that was not a lot of negligence on behalf of the suppliers or the, or the, or the service providers in that case, because it was a zero-day vulnerability being exploited. But uh, it certainly is a great example of how widely an attack can spread by manipulating service providers and their trusted access to so many people's computers. This is something that's not new again, but I think it's a great example uh, to, to inform us of how service providers can do a better job of protecting, which is about 10 years ago on, this, on the chat chat that you and I used to do, we were talking a lot about credit card theft and there was service provider after service provider in that space that managed those little machines you swipe your card through when you're at restaurants, fast food stores, chemists, and this kind of thing. And a lot of that's outsourced to service providers. And many of those service providers have one password on all 40,000 terminals that they remotely managed. And we saw how uh, credit card theft after credit card theft was happening by abusing that shared password. Password one, two, three. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, we do still see that in managed service provider environments, even if we're not talking about credit card machines. You know, you may have any of six different technicians that are going to provide services to this customer. And so it's much easier to have one password for all the customers or maybe even one password for each customer. But it's shared amongst five, 10, 10 20 people, which, uh, of course, means if those people are dismissed or decide to leave the organization, you don't change the password because it's too hard because 20 different people are using it. And, you know, there's a lot of this behavior still going on. And certainly that has been abused to distribute ransomware, not just uh, through zero days, like in the Kaseya incident. But, you know, in the past 18 months, I'm, we, we saw service providers that specialize in providing services to dental offices end up deploying ransomware to all their customers. We saw uh, similar with real estate agents. There's been many different examples where specialized service providers who manage large numbers of people in a given space uh, on their behalf were sharing passwords, were not using multi-factor authentication, and had all of their remote access tools directly exposed to the internet. And so I think those are the three things that come to mind for me specifically when we're talking about service providers, which is don't provide access to all of your employees, limit it to the, number, you know, the employees that actually need the access, make sure they all have unique access, and make sure that access is multi-factor authentication involved. If you're a professional technician providing services, you should have no objection to using a security key or an app in order to log into a uh, customer's environment where full administrative trust has been granted to you. Exactly. And if you do work for an MSP and you work with, say, three out of the 10 customers, the fact that you're deliberately locked out of helping the other seven customers is not a sign that your employer doesn't trust you. It protects you as much as it protects your employer, as much as it protects the person further down the line. And I guess that's an example of what the jargon calls zero trust, isn't it? Or need to know. If there, if there are things you actually do not need to be able to do in order to complete your job, then it's actually better to be locked out of them because then nothing can go wrong, whether by accident or by design. 
Absolutely. And, and a few of our partners I know that I've talked to actually have teams that provide services to different groups of customers, right? So if you're, if you're this restaurant customer, uh, you have team A assigned to you and it's like, you know, five or six people so that you can cover shifts, you can cover vacations, you can cover maternity leave, whatever you need to cover. But it's not all 75 technicians that can access uh, the team A customer accounts. Right, Chester. Let's go to what you might call the mouth of the estuary, the IT consumer. And I don't mean consumer as in, you know, home user necessarily. I mean, somebody who accepts things like updates, security advice, security configuration changes, operational configurations from somebody upstream. What about the person at the end of it all? Well, I would hope that most organizations have some sort of a onboarding process for purchasing software from vendors and deciding uh, how to evaluate those vendors and what criteria they must meet in order to qualify to be a vendor to their organization. That may not occur in the really small organizations, although I would still encourage them to do so. Most organizations do have some sort of process for this. And what you need to make sure is that security uh, is part of that onboarding process uh, or that maybe the approvals process for, for them to be onboarded as a vendor. Uh, to be sure that they're up to the quality that you like. And, and this is a complicated thing to do from the outside, right? Because you're unlikely to send in your own team of auditors to audit how they do security. And so it, it does get rather complicated. And in fact, Chester, the, somebody sent in a question and his comment was along the lines of, uh, everybody tells me they take my cybersecurity seriously when I sign up for their service, but then they use exactly the same words when they send me one of those oh, sorry, we had a data breach emails. So how on earth am I supposed to tell whether they really do take my cybersecurity seriously or not? And that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Yeah, because in essence, what you're trying to do is you're trying to judge their maturity level of their security program, right? And that's a, that sounds like a bit of weasel words, but you're not really trying to assess any given one thing. You're trying to look at the whole picture of, how seriously they take security, how far are they along in providing all of the latest and best practices. And sometimes that can be a lot harder um, for a big older company that can be for a young nimble one, right? If you look at securing software supply chains, it's often much easier to do when you're using modern tooling. And if you've been around for 20 years, you might have old tooling that's incredibly difficult to swap out for more modern tooling. So there's really no hard and fast rule. Now, on the other hand, you could be dead modern and you do everything by just saying, well, I'll let NPM will look after all the dependencies. I only use one module. It will figure out the other 1,879 that I need. And let's hope none of them got hacked lately. So that can cut both ways, can't it? Uh, it can. And so I think one of the things that I've been telling people to do, and it's certainly something I do even as a consumer looking at software, is I like to look at the release notes. Like I'm the kind of nerd that reads the terms of service before I install an app on my phone. So maybe I'm not really fitting the normal mold here, but that release notes to me is a key component in all software has vulnerabilities uh, and bugs and we're fixing them on a regular basis. I agree very strongly with you on that, Chester. And I think you don't necessarily need to be technically savvy and understand all the jargon that's in the release notes. I think that tone of the company really comes out quite strongly if you kind of know what to almost listen for in among the words. Uh, yeah, I think an, an organization that's being open and continually improving their security typically will tell you about it. They won't hide it. They'll give you some sort of detail level. Depending on the size of the company, they may list 
CVE numbers that are vulnerabilities that have been officially registered. Yes. They're a smaller company. They might not, but they might still make a note saying this software has been updated to improve the security. You should apply it now. Uh, there, there were things reported to us by these, uh, you know, bug bounty people or whatever. Uh, that's another thing you can look to. Organizations that run a bug bounty are typically higher up on that security maturity spectrum because they're inviting people to scrutinize their software and help them improve the security, which are all very positive signs that uh, a company feels confident in their ability to uh, defend that software well, and, or website for that matter, if it's some sort of cloud service that you're su subscribing to. And if they have had any security incidents, gosh, those root cause analysis that are published very commonly now by a lot of vendors when they have a public security incident are another one of those things that you can get that tone from. What is their confidence in what they're telling you? Are they being open and honest about the details? So if they are, they're probably learning from that incident and improving, and it's not necessarily a bad sign because we all have incidents in the end. How does that saying go? Once is misfortune, twice is carelessness. And I think, you know, another sign of this stuff often is how well that team at that organization is working, right? Are, are all parts of the company involved? Because when you have an incident, you want to make sure that your legal team's involved, your communication team's involved, certainly the software developers uh, that maybe are responsible for the bug or, you know, whatever. But those groups need to be groups that are comfortable working together. They need to have trust. And you can tell the, the writing, as you say, you can kind of read those tea leaves on the confidence of that organization and their statement and the accuracy of the statements they make. Because when, when those people are working together well, they give you the truth, they give you accurately, and uh, they continually provide you updates during the incident and during the crisis. And that's a really, uh, those are all really positive signs that a company takes these things very seriously. And I add into that a little bit of, are there warning signs in their management that they don't have a tight-knit team? And I go on LinkedIn and it's like, if they're continually rotating in CISOs or CTOs, this kind of thing where they're there six months and another one comes in and then they're there nine months and then somebody's there three months. You're going, well, that doesn't sound like a program that's uh, well integrated and mature. It sounds like they're uh, constantly going in different directions. And of course, that, that usually ends poorly. Chester, I think that's a great point on which to end. The idea that although we'll never stop all supply chain attacks, collectively, if we all lift our game a little bit, and we left our game all the time, we can actually do an awful lot to keep ourselves much safer than perhaps we have been in the past. So Chester, thank you so much for your time. Thanks to everybody for listening. Until next time. Stay secure. Stay secure.